Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for joining me again today. I've got a really cool podcast lined up for you. I'm having a conversation with Tony Jones. Tony Jones is a friend. He's an author. He was the editor of my last book. He's had a very interesting and rocky road the last few years in his professional life, in his personal life. And um, the path that he found solace uh, in and kind of a new direction and aim in life, I think is very interesting. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I think it's also quite timely. We talk about false accusations and the internet mob and um, what it's like kind of in behind the scenes of the Christian world, the evangelical world, the emergent world. So uh, that was our connection. Tony and I met in in some of these uh, emergent Christianity circles. If you don't know what that is, stay tuned. And um, he's since kind of out of that world, and so am I. So we have a an intriguing and, and I think interesting conversation. Um, he's also has his own podcast called The Reverend Hunter, which I really enjoy. And um, so you can check him out there. Uh, what else do I need to say? I need to thank my Patreon supporters who make this podcast happen every month. I really am very grateful. It couldn't happen without you. And thanks for your feedback and your comments and your questions through the Patreon site, through the app. It keeps me going. It gives me ideas. So keep it up. Really, really grateful. One of the things that comes up in this podcast with Tony Jones is we talk a bit about Israel. He's got a question for me about about the land. He's never been there. And I'm mentioning that now because I do have an Israel trip planned coming up in March. And of course, the world is the way the world is, as you know. But things look promising for this trip happening in March. The main group is coming from Denver, a church there, Denver Community Church. They've been, I think, this might be their fourth time, for sure, third time. Um, And I mean, different people are coming each time. But uh, if that is something that interests you, go to my website, kentopson.com, look under the tours section, send me an email and I'll send you the details. A huge part of the Israeli economy, both um, Israelis and Palestinians relies on the tourist industry and it's been almost completely shut down for, it'll be coming up on two years. And of course I have friends, um, Palestinians and Israelis that um, are my contacts and colleagues there and and it would be really, really good to get back, not only just to support them, but to um, experience the land in the way that I guide and lean tours. If, if that is something that interests you, check it out. Um, I really still still feel pretty passionate about the opportunity. It is um, a privilege and, an, and, and a life-changing kind of experience for most people who, who come with me. Not only do we study... Um, the origins of Christianity and Judaism and the Bible and cultural background stuff, but you get a taste of what is the modern state of Israel and what are some of the questions. It's 
it's really a 101 when it comes to that. Most tours are really heavy-handed one side or the other, pro-Palestinian, pro or pro-Israeli. I try to just uh, enter the country as a tourist and as a learner, as a student. So the trips introduce you to the, that those questions. Um, it's more of a deep dive into into the history of, of this place. And it's also a chance to be outside. We spend an enormous amount of time walking and hiking and talking. It's a pilgrimage in the traditional sense of the word where it's a journey. And I don't even know what's going to happen. Of course, I have an itinerary, but there is flexibility and there's conversation. And, and you, I think people on my trips feel at home, whether they're new to faith or they don't have any faith or they lost their faith or they have questions about the Bible. Uh, or about Christianity, or about re religion more generally. I I, um, I try to create a welcoming and and I think inquisitive environment. So anyway, enough on that. I just wanted to throw it out there. There are spots available right now, uh, and um, yeah. So if that interests you, would love to have you join me in this very cool part of the world. So I think that's it. I hope you enjoy the podcast today. Again, thanks to my Patreon supporters for making it happen. And I'll see you down the road. I got a couple of other special guests planned. And of course, I'll be cranking out my own solo podcasts as the months unfold. Oh, one more PS. I'm going to be doing a lot of traveling in the fall. I will be gone the end of this month and also a lot of October. My guide training work at Animus Valley Institute in Colorado is kicking off again, so I'll be in wild places, um, so MIA for a while, but in the best kind of way, so I'm really, really looking forward to being in Southwest Colorado, especially this time of year. Oh, man, it's, it's amazing, so what a gift, and so I'll be out of contact here and there, but I'm sure I'll come back with all kinds of... Um, ideas and um, I guess fodder for future podcasts. So talk to you soon. Peace. All right. Welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. I'm with Tony Jones today. Super excited about that. And I want to say as genuinely and sincerely as I can, thank you for changing my life. And I mean this very in some very direct and obvious ways. You invited me to this thing called Christianity 21 with 21 speakers. And I gave a talk. This is when I, I think I was the pastor at Mars Hill at the time. You were. Yeah. 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 Mars Hill, uh, Grand Rapids. I guess we have to make a distinction now. <laughs> now, now you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you did back then. Then for a long time you didn't. And now again, you do. <laughs> okay. All right. So the other Mars Hill. Um, and this was the first time I really, ever told the story about being bitten by a camel out loud to anyone. And I told it, I think, I mean, I was, I felt tentative and unsure. Um, I don't, I don't, don't mean so much in the delivery. Maybe I seem that way too. I just mean like, what am I, what happened to me and what is happening to me? And I don't know, that started a whole cascading effect in my own life. And, and of course you were also the editor for the the book that eventually became bitten by a camel. And you really, really helped me um, get closer to this, 
story or bits and pieces of the story of my life and what was happening and really pushed me to be more personal and less abstract. So I want to say thanks. Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe at this point, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself a little bit. Like yeah. who's Tony Jones and uh, where are you coming from? And, and why, and, and why, if you have an opinion about Tony Jones, is it probably wrong? <laughs> That's been my experience lately. Uh, Kent, you know, I, I remember that here, here's what I remember about that experience of hearing you give that talk is it's interesting the you know the title of your podcast because i think now look i didn't go to marcel i was just i was hearing about this mostly from you but maybe just it was also in the air is that when you were preaching at mars hill you were preaching some hints and guesses about where you were going mm -hmm. um but at Christianity 21, you kind of brought it all together in a 21 minute talk. And like you, you laid it all out there for the first time um, in, in a public setting. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that Doug Padgett and I could make a, a space that was safe for you to do that, um, if I'm remembering that right. But I remember it being very powerful, particularly for you, I think. Mm -hmm. But I mean, for everybody there. But you were obviously in a place of people that were almost all pastors, Christian leaders, and probably in general more progressive than the congregation at Mars Hill, yeah, Grand Rapids. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I do remember that. And I will tell you, um, I am so proud of acquiring and editing your book. I still use it, actually. I teach writing classes about memoir hmm. and I write, I use your, I, I, I have this thing that you probably heard me talk about before about every book, including memoirs needs a hook and it needs a, a payoff. And what I think is why your book succeeds is it has a hook bitten by a camel. You're like, what the heck is what's bitten by a camel. Plus at the time you had some notoriety for being at Mars Hill and for this, line if i'm getting this right i don't even know what the word god means anymore yeah that yeah. preaching that line and making noise uh, you know made made some headlines in grand rapids and around the country because of the stature of that church and then the payoff though at the end of the book and i show up on on my keynote presentation i show up a page of your book in which you basically challenge the reader to allow themselves to be bitten by a camel hmm. or to look back on their own lives and say, when have you, when were you bitten by a camel? You know, this kind of thing. It's like, it's not just about you, but you turn it outward to the reader. And what's the payoff for the reader? The reader gets to the end of your memoir and thinks like, Oh my gosh, am I open to those kind of encounters? And then to looking back on them and interpreting them or seeing what they were about for me, because obviously at the moment you were, bitten by a camel it, it, that story grew in significance in hindsight yeah. yeah for sure right at the time it was just like you were tired yeah. dirty you know uh, anyway i i just have such vivid memories of reading that and how well you wrote about that experience of that day and you know like what renting a blanket from somebody up on the mountain and yeah. Yeah. everything about it so 
that I'm I'm glad I could play a part in having that come to print. Yeah, I appreciate um, it. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm a um I'm a I'm a Minnesotan. That's one of the ways I identify myself. I I'm a, a a real believer that Minnesota is the greatest place to live in the world and I will live here till I die. Um I'm a father to 3 kids who are 21, 20 and 17. So two in college and one in high school. And I'm married to Courtney, who's the love of my life, who's not the mother of those children, but is nevertheless my partner. And I mean, she's everything. She's, she rescued me and saved me um, from a very difficult time. Uh, I grew up in the mainline church, which put me a little bit out of step with the rest of the people I hung out with during the 10 year run of the emergent church movement, because most of them yourself included came from evangelicalism. And I didn't, I came from a progressive Christian church, a congregationalist church here in the twin cities. Um, you know, we had women pastors and we had gay people and stuff like that. So it was, we didn't do gay weddings at the time, but you know, when I was growing up, obviously that wasn't much of an issue yet in, in kind of white suburbia. Mm. Um, but we were pretty progressive. And so, uh, I felt very early on that I should be a pastor. It was what I wanted to do. And I was affirmed in that at that church. What's that mean? Uh, You were affirmed. I mean, the, the church said, yes, we agree with you. Or what do you mean? I mean, the church uh, put me in leadership positions from like the time I was in middle school, having me teach Sunday school classes. And then when I was in high school, I was quickly elevated into leadership positions of being a church camp counselor. And then in college, I was a summer intern. Um, Mm -hmm. I was getting encouraged to go to seminary when I went to seminary straight after college, uh, the deacon committee of that church, the deacon board gave me money to help pay tuition every year. I came home and they had people praying for me while I was in seminary and meeting with me every time I was home for vacation or whatever. So I went um, straight after college. I went to college on the East Coast and then I went to Fuller Seminary immediately after college. And, you know, I was done with my MDiv by like 24 or something, Mm -hmm. 24, 25 loved the academic aspect of seminary, loved theology, loved philosophy, Uh, particularly at Fuller at the time, there was a lot of talk of postmodern philosophy and how that was in conversation with Christian theology. So I did a lot of studying of that. Mm. Um, Then I spent some years, three years working for a, a, short-term mission organization, helping launch a, an organization called YouthWorks, which includes included living on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, mm-hmm. which I've, I've recently done some writing about that. And I, I wrote a line in, in a memoir that I've written that says, I think that's when I was the most Christian <laughs> was when I lived on the Indian Reservation. And what does that mean to you? 
I mean, it was just like every day I woke up, Kent, and I knew what I was supposed to do. Right. I see. Like I sent mission. these kids. You had a mission. Yeah. I had a mission. These I sent these kids out to paint houses and run vacation Bible school. And then I'd go over to Pinky's store and sit there with the old Lakota guys and drink crappy coffee in a styrofoam cup, even though it was a hundred degrees outside, you know, (laughs) and they just welcomed me in. And I mean, they called me pastor and there's a lot of mischievous humor in that, um, in that, in that, um, culture that I kind of went right into and felt very much at home with. They, They just, I don't know everything about it. I I just felt like I was clicking on all cylinders um, in my mid twenties when I did that. Then in 97, I took a job at my home church as the pastor to youth and young adults. I also got married in 97, bought a house in 97, got a dog in 97. I was, you know, I was 29 and all those things, all those adulty things happened. Um, Mm -hmm. And I worked at that church for seven years, left in 03, went to Princeton to get a PhD in theology. Uh, Why? I, uh, I mean, what changed from, I'm a pastor, I'm caring for this local church. What, yeah. I mean, why go get a PhD? What was, what was pulling you? You know, I'd always loved and excelled at school. I just yeah. was good at school. That was one aspect of it. Um, I think it occurred to me at the time that maybe I wasn't cut out to be a pastor because the people who seemed to be appreciated as pastors were not Enneagram eights. Hmm. You know, they were, they were softer people with bigger hearts. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pastor Jeff, he has such a big heart. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> ever said that about me. They'd be like, Pastor Tony, he's opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> so my line at the time was I'm too big of a asshole to be a pastor. So I better go be a, a theology professor. Plus, you know, in 03, man, that was like the zenith of the emergent movement Mm, yeah and okay Uh, yeah you're about to say something else but let's i don't know how many i'm sure some people will know what the emergent movement was and i should just say 2003 that's an interesting year for me too because i moved to israel i i uh Uh, i left the other mars hill as the worship pastor and moved to israel to go to graduate school so um Anyway, yeah, so the emergent movement, what was happening? The emergent movement, in brief, was a a, a movement, a a group of people, Gen Xers, who were in their 20s and 30s at the time, with a few outliers like Brian McLaren, who's 10 years older than we, who wanted to reform the church in America, um, particularly at the beginning the evangelical church in America. It was a group of people who, like yourself, had grown up in the big box seeker-sensitive churches of the baby boomers and were rejecting that model of church and trying to develop models of church that were smaller, more authentic, 
moving from the suburbs back into the cities, trying to be more um, theologically sophisticated. Uh, so that was the emergent movement. And, you know, for about 10 years, we were um, really popular. I mean, we were on the covers of magazines and I was getting flown around the world for speaking gigs and I was getting book contracts thrown at me by publishers because we were like the it boys of the Christian church at the time. Hmm. And Oh three was really the peak of that. And so I was not only getting book contracts and, and stuff like that, but it, it there was also a sense in the kind of core group of the emergent posse that it would be good for, one of us at least to get a PhD in theology because <laughs> we weren't being taken very seriously in the theological Academy. So we were getting a lot of buzz around people who were about like, how do you make churches grow? And how do you get Gen Xers to go to church? They don't seem to go to church. You know, those people were interested in what we had to say, but when we were starting to talk about theology, philosophy, biblical interpretation. People were like, Who, you know, you, you're just a bunch of youth pastors. What do you know? Yeah. So it seemed there. So anyways, it was a confluence of things. Mm -hmm. um, I never really wanted to be a professor per se, and I've never like actually applied to, for any professor jobs. Um, but I did want to get a PhD in theology and I did. I, from 03, I started, I finally wrote my dissertation in 2011. Um, as you know, well, my personal life came apart during that very window of time. And I ended up getting divorced uh, in 08, 09, really, really ugly and terrible, but got through it and was kind of through it. And then when my most recent book was published. Um, my ex-wife made a bunch of allegations about me, false allegations about me as a result of basically, I mean, to, to a cat put it in a like thumbnail because she lost custody of the kids and I gained custody, full custody of the kids. Um, she kind of lashed out at me. Um, online. Which, yeah. Online. Mm -hmm which caused a great deal of pain, personal pain and lost career opportunities. You know, you, you were right in the thick of it with me there for about a week. Uh, yep. And so, yeah, my life has changed a lot. Um, yeah. I think about that a lot. I mean, 15 years ago I was, you know, Oh Tony's going to come to an emergent speaking tour in Australia or Tony's on a flight to Malaysia or Tony, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that I mean, kind you, of, do thing. you feel like, I mean, are you disappointed by that? Or is that just like, I mean, what's the feeling associated with uh, that's not my life anymore. Uh, yeah, it was really hard for a long time because so many friends abandoned me. Because in the church world, when you go through what I went through, you just kind of become radioactive, you know? Yeah. And people were trying to make careers for themselves and a lot of other kind of minor Christian celebrities like me to have me around didn't help their, 
them get speaking gigs and book deals or whatever. So I lost, I mean, really, I like, I, I used to have a huge circle of people um, around the country and around the world. And my, my life right now is really small. It's very, very small, very contained. Um, for a long time, I struggled with the idea that I had worked so hard. I'm, su- I'm very ambitious, a very driven person. Like I've already said on an Enneagram eight. So any of your listeners who know the Enneagram will understand that I'm just like a kind of a driven leader type person, the challenger, some people call the eight. Uh, and I made a living at that. You know, I, some of the same places you spoke, the national youth workers convention, I was, I was kind of the anti- the postmodern antagonist. They would have debate people like Duffy Robbins and Chap Clark and some of the old school youth ministry guys. Uh, I I had a very popular blog on Pathios that was known for being abrasive and aggressive, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of that stuff came back, you know, to haunt me. Unfortunately, because it was that. I don't know. I mean, I could go deeper into that, but the hardest thing was that. I worked so hard for 20 years to build a career and then it was gone like literally in two months, my entire career was gone. And that was so head snapping for me. And now you see it all the time with, with the me too movement. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Same more. It's happening to, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's happening to other people and it happened to me before that whole thing happened. So I didn't really have a context for it. It seems so unfair. And it seemed so unjust that it was really hard for me because I just wanted somebody to make it right, you know, Mm -hmm. to see the truth and make it right. And I'm like, look, the courts awarded me my kids. Like I've been vindicated. Didn't Mm -hmm. matter. But now you look, of course, now, now I see it happening to other people, some of whom are falsely accused and some of whom, whom are accurately accused. And I'm like, oh, okay, now it, it's happening a lot. And it is, you know, for sure, um, because of the internet, like without the internet, we wouldn't have happened to me. And it yeah. wouldn't, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be happening to a lot of other people either. So, yeah, I'm I mean, really, it is, I, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, the culture is like, <clears throat> you're guilty until proven innocent. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the way it goes. And then if you're in your case, proven innocent, well, you still have got this cloud, this radioactive cloud hanging about you. So you're probably not worth right. getting near. It's so I like don't that. know if you, yeah, I don't mean, I don't know if you want to talk about what happened with you and me, but like I was supposed to preach yeah, fine. at your church on Palm Sunday, the week my book released. Yeah, It was like my biggest, it was my biggest preaching gig of my life that I'd ever had. I'd never preached at a church that big before. I had a book coming out from a major publishing house, like my only my second ever major, you know, publishing house book release. And um, you, your elders made you cancel me. Yeah. And I remember the phone call and you were just like, I, I don't believe the stuff that's about you on the internet, but there's nothing I can do. You're just, it, you know, I don't know that you use the term radioactive, but it's just like, we just can't, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, basically. Yeah. That's irrelevant. Yeah. 
no, that's, that's, that's a rough, that's a, I mean, yep. That's what happened. I remember talking to you on the phone. I remember pacing around my own. You were in grief. You yeah, were in it, grief. It was, it was such a, a terrible spot to be in because yeah. it's funny how mega churches have, they all have these power dynamics and usually I have the power. I don't mean to be arrogant. I just mean, that's the way they're set up. Yeah. And, and I get up there every week and I get to say essentially whatever I want to say. Um, and so there's always this tension, but when it came to something like this, all of a sudden it just like flipped around. And that was the, really the first time anyone had ever told me, no, that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, I suppose I could have, I don't know. I mean, there was nothing, I mean, it came down to like legal issues, like you're no, we're the elders, the bylaws say, um, and we're just not going to take this risk. And, and even if it was, um, well, what if in a few weeks, all this gets cleared up? Cause it was like coming down to a matter of days or weeks. If I remember correctly, it was, oh, like, it was just, I think wait. it was the week before yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was still like, no, nah, we're, we're not going to touch this. So, um, yeah. yeah, it was terrible. Uh, and it's kind of, it's just a gross, it's, it's gross to see behind the curtain of how a big church works and what they're afraid of. Um, and just, I don't know, put you in such a terrible position that caused a lot of, you know, personal suffering and, and career suffering, you know, it's terrible. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. It's, um, it's a dark, it's just a dark little chapter. And as I think <laughs> about in the story and I, and, yeah. and it's funny cause I didn't, I probably left Mars Hill that same year later. Yeah. On. I, it was that same year. Yeah. Well, I think it was not long after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I even, I mean, I could go back and do the math. It's probably not worth it, but I think this was the fall or coming up on the fall that your book was coming out. No, it was Palm Sunday. Oh, oh, that's what it you was already in the spring. said. That. Yeah. I already said that. So then I, I would have, I probably left six months later. Yeah. yeah. And I remember thinking when you left, looking back on it and wondering if already you'd kind of been starting to be stripped of some power or, you know, how that, I didn't know the internal dynamics of, of the church or whatever. And of course it was an extremely generous um, offer to have me come and preach at your church on Palm Sunday. Not many churches have guest preachers on Palm Sunday. And well, well, and, 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 and I will also... just say this, you still paid me. You still <laughs> send me the tickets. You're like, we're still going to pay you. I was like, yeah. That's terrible. Mean, was, yeah. Thanks. No, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. So it, it was a dark time. Um, and my life is so different from that now. Uh, so different. Yeah. You know, I think we should add because the title of your book was did God kill Jesus? And that's why I wanted to have you at Marceau. It wasn't just like, well, um, I didn't, I mean, you weren't my editor at that point, you know, right. It was just, I was interested in what you had to say. And I thought it was pushing on things that, that were, that mattered. And that mattered at, at my particular church at Marceau, we were hovering around these questions of atonement and what is mm -hmm. the story that we're binding ourselves to. And that was the right Sunday to do it on Palm Sunday, but mixed. I already knew it was going to be heavy. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's not like a light topic. Like, let's have right. Joel Osteen come and smile at us. 
right. it's, it's like, all right, we're going to talk about something very challenging. That's going to push, push on people and then combine it with these other accusations. And it just became like, it was too much. It yeah. was too much. It was too yep. much. Yep. Yeah. What a time. Um, yeah, I don't, um, I mean, so can you fill in some details between did God kill Jesus and you're sitting now in a much smaller yeah. circle of um, connections and what, is, what are you doing? How did you find your way? I mean, I wonder how closely you and I even track on this. I mean, how, how similarly our paths have gone because um, I was working at a publishing house at the time and that was paying the bills while I was still doing a bunch of side hustles of speaking, writing, etc., just because having gotten full custody of my kids, you know, I needed health insurance and everything else. Um, but I finally just pulled the plug on that deal. And I remember the, the guy who had been the publisher moved. I mean, he had been an editor or something. He, he, moved to a bigger publishing house in Nashville and he texted me something like, or emailed me, it's time for Tony Jones to get back to being Tony Jones. <laughs> and when he said that, it was interesting because I, as much as I loved helping you birth your book, mm. I really felt like, I need to stop editing other people's words and start writing my own words again. Totally. Yep. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, so and and that, same with, yeah. same with setting up conferences and booking people and, you yeah. know, which is the other, uh, or our other dimensions of what you were up to. Which is I was doing like, a lot of that with Doug yeah. and he went mm -hmm. in a different, more political direction. And I decided I could somehow afford to quit my day job and write um, so, you know, the last few years, especially during COVID, everything dried up. I was doing a lot of freelance writing. Most of my writing these days has been, um, in the outdoors journalism world. Uh, I've written for several periodicals and I I've written regularly for the Minneapolis paper here, including a, a series of stories on the boundary waters. Um, so, that's been really fun, but a lot of freelance writing dried up during COVID just because everyone's budgets got super tight and stuff like that. So then I had been kind of pecking away at this memoir. I finished that, uh, which was har a harrowing experience. Yeah. Um, and I've been writing fiction recently. Um, so that's what I... Yeah, I've I've written one and a half novels in a in a trilogy. So I just, you know, I get up at five in the morning and drink some coffee and read the newspaper and then I come sit right here and I write till I can't write anymore. And then I go to the gym mm. and then I come home and I look back at what I've written and then I return emails or you know, talk to people or whatever. And then um you know, late breaking development is I started on staff at a church this just a few days ago, the first of September, hmm. um, as just 15 hours a week. 
as the, as a teaching pastor, interim teaching pastor, which different than you were probably called a teaching pastor or a lead pastor or something. Yep. Teaching. It, but same. It, yeah. Teaching pastor in the, yeah. in the evangelical world, that's more of like a lead pastor role. Yeah. But it, in the mainline world, there's a lead, you know, a senior pastor is what it's called. And then there's a, maybe a teaching pastor. It, my role is uh, teaching adult ed classes. Like I'm teaching Wednesday night class on Christology coming up this month and then going through, through the course of the year, going through all four gospels. Um, plus I'll be preaching pretty regularly at this church as well, uh, while they're in an interim looking for a new senior pastor. So yeah, back at, I know church staff since for the first time since 2003, mm -hmm. which is a crazy deal. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. This is kind of, um, how did you, it's a, I guess this is an odd way of putting it, but how did you not lose your faith or did you, or what was your relationship with your own faith, with Christianity, as you were just sort of being dumped by the world that you were sort of operating in for a while? Um, how would you, what, what would you say? That's a great question. I think that my faith has definitely evolved. I really do think that it was a great benefit for me long-term having grown up in a more progressive Christian tradition. So I simply did not have any fundamentalism to shed. Hmm. I yeah. see people going through deconstruction now. Um, and it's almost all evangelicals going through deep. You, you just don't see mainliners going, you know, <laughs> yeah. no Episcopalians are deconstructing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. So the Christianity I grew up with was always very open, inclusive, progressive. We were not hung up with things like the historicity of particular episodes in the Bible, you know, or, um, the six verses of the Bible that reference homosexuality. That just was not, wasn't the version of faith that I was raised in. So it wasn't one I had to shed. Um, I'm, I'm naturally skeptical. Um, but I try not to be, I have a few commitments and one is that I think that the scientific paradigm under which we all now live, which has for so many people um, basically taken away, given them reason not to believe anymore mm -hmm. because there's so many, there's materialistic answers for just about everything. Um, I think, I don't think the scientific paradigm is permanent any more than the angels and demons of medieval European Christianity was permanent. Hmm. Like, I think the scientific paradigm will be overturned. Might, might take 500 years or a thousand years or whatever, but it's, it's not going to last forever. It's, it's how we understand the universe now. And we're as committed to it as people in the middle ages were to angels and demons, mm -hmm. but it doesn't make it any more real than angels and demons. The scientific method isn't any more final than the 
Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas was. I mean, at the time that seemed final, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Science is just another framework, intellectual framework that we use to understand our world. So I just have a lot of humility about what we can know, Mm. what we can believe. And, you know, I was just listening to a podcast on Immanuel Kant this morning while I was working out as one does. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Does that make you slower or faster while working out? (laughs) What effect does it have on you? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's a good question. You have to pay attention next time. I I bench pressed way more. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I had a categorical imperative to bench press more (laughs) than usual. You're just throwing Um, it up. All right. And I mean, Kant's one of these guys, I think who, you know, he, he started this whole move, I think, toward epistemic humility by saying there, there are limits to human knowledge, but the only way we know our limits is by basically being outside of those limits or imagining what is outside of those limits. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like the fact that you can imagine God, that you, the fact that the human mind can imagine a being called God means that there's at least the possibility of that being called God. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not anything we can ever prove. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's probably doubtful we can ever even experience it. Although I know we think we experience it, but it's tricky to not have those experiences and be, have them be, you know, um, um, written off as, you know, there, there's scientific ways to, to explain human spiritual experience. So I just have a great deal of humility about it. That's the first part. And then the second part, Kent, is that I continue to be, ah, when, when I have the opportunity to preach, particularly to preach about Jesus, I find it a thrilling endeavor. Like, I love it. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about making the life of Jesus of Nazareth become alive or vibrant in the, in, in the eyes of people in a congregation. If, mm-hmm. if I can make something like that um, real to people that seemed unreal, I, I think that's good. And, and just generally whether it's true or not, the church is good for the world. At least the church, the version of church I'm in, like the church I'm on staff of right now, it's good for the world. Hmm. It's good people. It's progressive. It's loving. It's inclusive. It's making the world a better place. You can't say that about every church. I understand that. Hmm. But I just think like the church I'm at now, it, it makes the world a better place. So in some ways, it's not totally it might be immaterial whether God exists or how deep my personal faith is or something yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. So I'd say this in short, I never lost it, but I did kind of take a hiatus. And I would also say this, I don't know what I'd love to hear your actual, your thoughts on this, just because the, the people who rejected me or, or, threw me off the bus of Christian leadership are Christians who believe. 
I never took that to be a reflection of the divine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope not. You know what I'm saying? But Yeah. Yeah. But I bet it can get conflated easily. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 For me, it just never did. Mm-hmm. That was never like a rejection by God or like screw those people and, and mm-hmm. their God. Right. I just was like, you're being completely, you're like betraying everything you've said you believe in. <laughs> yeah. Just like other, just like human beings are prone to do. Yeah. 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 Wow. How, um, that is, I, I appreciate what you're saying about your humility around these things. And that's attractive, you know, maybe that's what you mean by progressive Christianity. Maybe you could try to define that because I've, I have, you know, I'm not sure what I think about such a term. Um, but if that's one way of defining it, a sort of, maybe it's an epistemological humility about its own structures, um, is an element and that, that is life-giving, you know, that's even to say to people that the scientific method has limits. We know, we know it has limits using it, using its own paradigm, <laughs> it like betrays itself. And, and also to say, Hey, this is how human evolution and thought unfolds and, and it will be replaced by something. Um, I think that's like, that's inviting. I mean, people are hungry for that sort of thing, especially in a, a world that is so mistrustful of everything right now, everything like just, we, we don't know where to look, you know, um, we don't know whom to trust. So it, maybe you want to say something about progressive Christianity. I wouldn't, um, what is it? <laughs> well, I, the, probably the easiest way to talk about what is progressive Christianity is to talk about what it isn't. And it, it, what it isn't, is a, a faith that is tied to the Bible as though the Bible were some infallible or inerrant text. Yeah. Maybe that's, uh, that's the dividing line right there. That's the dividing line, right? Isn't that the dividing line for Christians in general is how they read the Bible. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I really think that it almost every, I'm not saying back in the day, not, not that, that this does not go back to the great schism, you know, in 1054, this does not go back to, I mean, maybe it probably does start in 1517 with Martin Luther mm-hmm. saying like, I'm reading the Bible differently than the Catholic church. Well, that is more like I'm holding it differently. I don't know if oh, he's for reading sure. it differently, but holding it differently for sure. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And it's so a dividing line. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a dividing line. So uh, I, I, I was, I hung out with some conservative pastors a couple weeks ago and we were fishing. And one guy said to me, he's like, just, it was very, it wasn't, it was not an accusatory question. He's a pastor of a church in, in the South. And he said, um, can you give me like, just give me a theological defense for being open and affirming with gay people mm-hmm. based on what scripture says. And I said, do the women in your church wear head coverings? And of course he said, no. And I said, why, why don't they wear head coverings? He said, well, because Paul's requirement that women wear head coverings in church was cultural. I said, all right, yeah, done. That's my argument. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't just randomly pick some stuff, like either be Amish yeah. and make your women wear head coverings. And, or if you're going to let women 
come with uncovered heads and gold and braids in their hair, which mm-hmm. are directly against stuff Paul wrote. You can't just pick and choose, mm-hmm. you know, um, that this, so he said, do you, I said, do you let, I mean, I went on, I said, right. do you let divorced people preach divorced men, you know, men only do you let divorced men preach? Yes. Would your church have let divorced men preach 30, 50 years ago? No. You know, and I, you just go down the list of like the changes. Did Mm -hmm. you drink alcohol? Did the pastors of your church 50 years ago drink? No. You you know what I'm saying? So progressive Christianity embraces this, embraces this, um, this, what, what's, what some negatively would call the slippery slope, but Kent, what I think is, is why I think Christianity is the biggest religion in the world is because of the nature of the gospel and the nature of the gospel is plastic in the, in the, in the, not, not like the plastic, the material, but plastic as an adjective, mm-hmm. like malleable, malleable. shape, yeah. mm-hmm. shapeable, bendable. Yeah. That, that the gospel, unlike the gospel, and this, this then goes, if I can ask you a question, sure. can I ask you a question after this? Totally. Because this leads right to the big question I have for you. <laughs> unlike most other religions in the world, maybe all other religions that are tied to a particular ethnicity and or geography, Christianity uniquely is not. Mm-hmm. So it has been able to move into any culture over the last 2000 years and reshape itself mm-hmm. and still be redemptive, life-giving, hopeful, etc. That's that's what I think is unique about the gospel. Mm-hmm. It works for poor people, it works for rich people, it works for uh white people, it works for brown people, it works for men, it works for women, you know, in ways that other religions simply don't. I, and I think one of the things Jesus said, (laughs) Jesus made it clear. And then it was like, really became clear when, when general Titus tore down the temple in the year 70 Mm -hmm. is that this is not a geographically located religion. I'm Jesus came and said, you're, this isn't about your sacrifices. This isn't, this is a, this is a spiritual religion that I'm starting, which was dramatically different than, I wouldn't even call it Judaism. I mean, it was pre-rabbinic Judaism, right? It was mm-hmm. temple. It was temple based up at the same time, at least. Yeah, temple-based Hebrew religion. Mm-hmm. So I want. I've never. This is just a confession. Like I've never had any interest in going to Israel. Mm-hmm. It holds no allure to me. Yeah. It seems like a terrible place, to be quite honest. <laughs> what, what I read in the newspaper. <laughs> Like it's not hospitable, yeah. you know, not it, it's, it's, a, it's at war with itself. I know you love it. So I want to know what is it? What is it about that place that is, that, that pulls you, that has such a gravitational pull for you? Well, um, the short, the brief answer is, is I don't know. Hmm. It's, it's alluring. That's what I would say. There are, and I'm not, my love hate relationship with Israel isn't rooted in um, a kind of 
um, tourist specialness. That's maybe how it started. I went there as a tourist. Um, but this sort of like, this is the Holy land. I'm going to get down off the plane and kiss the ground, you know, this kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a microcosm of, of the major questions and challenges and politics and economics and clash of worldview and clash of religion all in the same place. So that's alluring. It's also dangerous. It's scary. Um, it, Israel, for me, even really on my first tour there, which was, a, you know, a sort of a biblically oriented slash archaeological exploration, it's, it was, I felt it was hard to know what story is being told here. It's hard to look at archaeological data and information and cultural background stuff without it turning your own ideas about what is the Bible upside down. So I like it for that. It's confrontive. I, in fact, if you go to Israel and it, and it affirms your theology, I mean, then you have a terrible guide. And I'm serious on the right and the left. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's like this place does not, does not affirm particularly American Western Christianity and its assumptions about even the person of Jesus and definitely not about the biblical text. So do you want to get close to that or not? So I have enjoyed it dismantling my own kind of worldview. And, and I enjoy that for others. I don't mean like I'm trying to take people there and, and, and rip them to shreds. I just mean it puts pressure and we need pressure. I mean, Christianity needs pressure for it to continue to do the things that you're describing before, which is change and progress and move around in culture. And um, so I like it for that reason. Um, and it's also a living place. It's not a relic, you know, it's not, it has relics, but the first time you go in the, the Holy, the Holy Sepulcher, which is the, the traditional place of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, you're like, this is a carnival. This is insane. Like, what the hell is this? Like, who's in charge here? And see, to me, that's attractive. It's like, how did this, the very thing that you were describing that Christianity is malleable and flexible and, and crosses barriers and ethnicities and languages, that's all on full display and nobody's covering that up. You know, they're like Greek inscriptions and, you know, stuff in Aramaic and then there's Russian and then there's the Ethiopians and then there are the Coptics, you know, and it's like, and they're all... It does say something about, I don't want to sound too fancy, but like the archetypal power of the Christ symbol. It's, it's not deniable in that sense. It, it, it runs through people in various ways. And the fact that it's still here is like so intriguing to me. And even in a, in a culture that's becoming increasingly more non-religious i think the christ symbol it still works it's like because jesus was like what you were saying before is also that kind of figure he's not like hey let's all go to the temple and let's give our tithes and get back to real religion and let's sacrifice things he's like tearing things apart and shouting at people and and loving the wrong people at the at the wrong time and and and, and it, so I don't know, it's, it like still strikes me as it hooks people from time to time. 
And even how, as you were describing preaching, like I'm not in a Christian church anymore preaching, but I also like, I love to talk about Jesus. It's not like that thing I used to do back when I was super religious and had an office with two rooms in it and got paid three times as much as I make now, you know? So it's, there's like no difference to me in what's intriguing to me about, about, uh, the mystery of Christ. And I'm not trying to sound fancy. I just really, that's like straightforward to me. Yeah. It's a bit mysterious and, yeah. um, it's not done with its effect on the world. That's my intuition. And I guess belief also, um, yeah. So I don't know if I answered you, your question about, well, yeah. Name. And okay. So do you get frustrated with the people, be they evangelical Christians, Jews or Muslims who are like, no, 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 this actual physical material place is really more sacred than every other place. And we're going to fight like hell till it becomes ours. Mm, I mean, yeah, that's, that's frustrating, but that's, I don't know. To me, it, that's um, a certain, I don't mean to be derogatory, but it's a certain level of consciousness that it doesn't, it implodes on itself after a while anyway. But there are a lot of people who think that. Yeah. Like millions and millions of people. I don't know how literally they, some do, for sure, some do. I mean, yeah. even Jews, even Orthodox Jews, you know, they say the third temple is the state of Israel. But they kind of like, you know, they wink, you know, they're like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, Islam is a little different. Um, and, and Islam, Jerusalem is, is tangential tangential yeah. i mean it's now it's yeah. becoming a bigger deal because it's part of the conflict with the west it's a right. it's it's caught in the middle of that conflict but it's not the center of islam so um yeah i don't i don't know it's like i think people need something to project upon <laughs> so it's like all right so we project upon Jesus, like we create Jesus in our own image for a while, you know, but if we stick with it long enough, at least the next generation is going to say, no, nah, that's that. No, not really. You know, and same with the land, you know, we, you can, that's why I like to take people to Israel because if they have this super special feeling, like God loves this place more than other places and just turn them loose in a city and they get cut off and they're annoyed and they don't even know who's a Jew and who's a, who, who are the good ones and who are the bad ones, you know? And it's just like, okay, this is, this is just very human. This is way more human. There's a, there's a, um, uh, an Israeli poet, Yehuda Amichai that I, that I like a lot. And he, he has this line, he says, redemption will come. Um, so anyway, I should describe more of the scene. He's sitting there near a Roman arch and they're using him as a reference point for the Roman arch. And he just reverses it. It says redemption will come when they say, do you see that Roman arch over there? Don't worry about it. There's a man sitting there with groceries, you know, for his family. And I mean, he's just, he's playing with that kind of tourist sort of approach. Um, and I'm not picking on tourists, by the way. I mean, Israel is a country of immigrants, especially from the Israeli point of view. They're kind of tourists yeah. too, you know, it's so anyway. Um, well, you should, I'll tell you when, as a pastor and a theologian, when somebody's like, I've been to Israel 14 times, you know, wh what do you think about Israel? I'm like, eh, 
not really interested. People just like, what? Yeah. I've never heard a pastor say he didn't want to go to Israel. But yeah. I would say if I were going to go to Israel, I would want to go with you. Yeah, I hope you do someday. That would and, be awesome. And, and another big, I mean, you know, I've had been through my own changes in the last few years, but I'm, I'm deeply into sort of wilderness work, working with people outside. Mm -hmm. And that's always been a part of my Israel trips. A big part of how people talk about them when they're done is like, it was amazing that we wandered around in the wilderness, you know, and we went to all these mm -hmm. unusual places. It's a, it's a pilgrimage in the very traditional sense of it's a wandering. And I like to wander. And I like the landscape to have an effect on people. I think one difference maybe between my upbringing and yours that probably feeds into some of my, my attraction to Israel is it's because of the fundamentalism, like the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Well, there are like a lot of amazing things in the Bible that, that the landscape itself speaks to. Like you can go to Kinneret, that's the technical term, the Sea of Galilee, and there it is. And it, it is kind of amazing. You're like, wait a minute. So when it says Jesus gets in a boat and goes to the other side, we just have like a sense. It's like it, the Bible is not pure myth, like fairy tale. It's a combination of things. And, and, yeah. and that's kind of, I think that's eye-opening for people and something I enjoy sort of exposing people to. But anyway, yeah. just turn, letting the landscape work on people, I think is powerful. So anyway. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I've got, well, I've, I've become a big part of my life too, because when I didn't really have a church to go to, I went outside and yeah, tell uh, me about that. That's, that's what I wanted to kind of bridge to. You know, tell me about yeah, your podcast I just, and, I and what went happened. outside. I went outside and, and I've, I've, I've been very fortunate that my family owns property back to the 1960s that my grandfather purchased in central Minnesota forest land on a lake and you know a couple hundred acres a lot of room to be be alone in the in the wood and um i i've gone up there my whole life so that was always kind of a sanctuary place for me a special sacred place for me but i also in my 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 dad was not a hunter my neither my grandfather's hunted um but hunting is a, a an avocation that I've taken up in my adulthood, and I absolutely love it. It has become just like the central non, other than like raising kids and having a job. What I do, uh, especially this time of year, so um, it's super important to me and I spend a lot of time doing it and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. Honestly, it's a practice, you know, and I'm trying to get better at it all the time. Um, okay. So, so yeah, does that, yeah. Did, uh, for, I'm, I, I'll use some cliches here, but you know, a PhD in theology now working for a progressive liberal ish church in Minnesota uh, what are you doing out in the woods, you know, killing animals? That's for like, you know, that's for the right wingers. You know what? What? I mean, yeah, there's, I'll tell you, Kent, there's a lot of, there's a lot of red state people I hunt with. Yeah. And I love those people. 
Um, they are not people I would otherwise be in contact with. They're not people who would be in my natural social circles, nor go to my church, nor, um, you know, you just don't, yeah, you don't find people with PhDs from Princeton and duck blinds mm-hmm. <laughs> with shotguns in their hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a bit of an anomaly in that world and they all know it, mm-hmm. but you know what? Um, those guys, they did not give a shit about what the internet said about me. Mm-hmm. So I would go out there to South Dakota to pheasant hunt and I'd roll into town and walk into the bar and have a beer. And none of those guys, they hadn't read, they didn't know about, they didn't give a shit. They didn't care that half of them have been divorced. Ah, my freaking ex-wife, you know, this and that. I'm just one of the guys. I'm not, I'm not a guy with any, extra status because of my uh, doctorate or because I'm ordained or because I have 16,000 Twitter followers. They don't care about any of it. Mm-hmm. And that was so refreshing to yeah. like, I could leave, I could drive for five hours and land. It was like landing on a different planet. Mm-hmm. And those guys just love me for who I am. They're like, you're a good guy good dog. You're fun to hunt with. That's it. That's all we need. Like, you know what I'm saying? And yeah, we'll like debate politics at night at the bar. And they give me a lot of grief. You know, when, when Trump won, oh my gosh, on Trump won, I had predicted that Hillary was going to win in a landslide. And (laughs) then I went out to South Dakota the weekend after the election And I walked into Shorty's Cafe in Platte, South Dakota. And it's just a sea of blaze orange because everyone's out there to pheasant hunt. Mm -hmm. There's my table, my guys, I don't know, eight or 10 of them. And as soon as I walk in the door, they all yell, Hillary! They called me (laughs) Hillary that whole weekend. They called me Hillary. uh, This is hopeful. This is a hopeful vision, I think. Ken, it's just been really, really refreshing. Um, these guys are salt of the earth and misguided and Fox newsers and, you know, scared of immigrants and just go, you go down the list, but they're also like, they're real people mm-hmm. and if I were not in their life, they wouldn't know a single liberal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I shatter their stereotypes of liberals and they shatter my stereotypes of conservatives because you know what? Mm-hmm. They care about people. They yeah. love people. They give away their money. Like they, they're misguided, I think, on some things, but I'm sure, but I'm misguided on some things. And maybe it goes back to the epistemic humility that I try to cultivate in my whole life because. I've lost a lot. So what do I know? I'm not, I was a cocky SOB when you first met me and I just don't know that I know that much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know what else? Um, you're going to die and I'm going to die. And you and I have both watched our fathers die. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, there was a, um, 
in the in the Middle Ages, there was the and it kind of grew out of um, the Stoic philosophers of ancient Greek Greece and Rome. That they they would say keep your mortality, keep your death in front of you at all times because you will live a better life knowing that you're going to die. So sometimes you see these paintings. Oh yeah, from the them. Renaissance, the, the skull in like one a hand. yeah. Mm. The skull on the shelf in the kitchen or holding the skull, looking at it. The Latin phrase for that is memento mori. Remember your death. Remember your mortality. And I, um, I'm around death all the time because I'm killing animals and I'm butchering them. And I think that we have, we have, and you know this from your pastoral work too, we have so hidden away death, all aspects of death from our lives. You know, our ancestors, all, everybody was, they, they saw dead human bodies all the time. Mm-hmm. You and I never see dead bodies, you know, and we might see a dead deer by the side of the highway, but I'm, I'm a part of uh, another theologian gave me this phrase. I'm a part of the cycle of predation because I eat meat. I'm implicated in the death of animals just by the fact that I eat meat. So now I'm part of that process and I'm just in touch with the predator prey relationship. I'm in touch with my own mortality. So that's the deeper meaning that I've gotten from the enterprise of hunting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for me, it's like um, it's stepping closer in consciousness to what's actually true about life and death. And it's not just that we've removed ourselves from dead bodies. It's just from all things death. I mean, meat is uh, something that's processed. Um even uh, maybe, maybe you heard uh, that famous line. So you're vegetarian. This is from Joseph Campbell. So you're a vegetarian. Can't you hear the carrot screaming? You know? So it's like, <laughs> you don't get a free no. pass. It, no. I th- I, and I think we're being asked. I think there's something about our age and our air that's being asked to bring more attention to this life, death, life cycle. And it's, it's sacred. Say, I think about hunting and killing as a sacred, it's possible to approach that from as a sacred task. And the least sacred thing to do is basically the way we consume anything at all. So, um, yeah. And and I love your, I love what you're saying of just about the left, right, um, nature of our country. I mean, I, I have sort of felt like the Trump for me was, Hey, it's time to pay attention to what's actually true. <laughs> what what's really the case, not my illusions of America and even where it's going, you know? Just yeah. take a look. And I and the funny thing is I, I grew up in Virginia in the woods. I lived when we moved to Michigan, I lived far out. We lived far out. Um I'm not people like that quote, like that you're describing, they don't bother me. You know, someone with a, with a gun rack in the back of a pickup is not someone that I'm naturally afraid of. I think, but these are just the people that I grew, grew up around. And we have certainly lost that 
um, connection right now. It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I guess my main point is you're describing something that I think is quite hopeful about um, what's possible. And, and, and maybe one other sort of PS here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I have come to think about conservative and liberal progressive or traditional, what, however you want to put it as being largely, well, not largely, partially a matter of disposition and, do we not need like various dispositions? No, we do. It's like a left right brain thing. It's like, you can't ever get rid of this. And I think that was part of the illusion that I was under. I just thought growth meant moving from right to left. That's growth. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> just naive, really. Mm -hmm. I think that's how a lot of, especially people in my circles, Christian ish circles, you know, well, if you're not growing, you're stuck over there on the right, you know, and it's just, it's just not true uh, in the sense of, dispositions and ways of orienting toward the challenges of life. I mean, it's just, it's a facade. So, um, okay. Let me see what time it is. All right. 240. All right. I feel like I'd like to try to land the plane here somewhere. Um, and maybe I want to ask like, is there something I should have asked you that I didn't, <laughs> or is there something that you want to ask me that you didn't or both? Yeah. I, I, I just finished reading a book today that I'm, I'm reviewing for uh, the Christian century magazine. And it's a book I think you should read. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It's called the Herod's. Mm -hmm. And it's about the Herodian dynasty. And what's so fascinating to me, I'm trying to kind of frame up what I'm going to write my book review this afternoon of it. But it, it reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, that, that whole world is like, if, if you think of the life of Jesus or the whole New Testament as kind of a play, that world is like the scene that's been, that the play takes place in front of, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. The scene that's been built and painted by the scene maker people. Mm -hmm. So Herod is kind of this bit player, right? Um, or, and there's a couple Herods that mm -hmm. interact, you know, but between Jesus' birth and then his death, uh, two, two different members of the Herodian line. Um, but just everything that's going on in all of Judea at that time and Samaria, and then the interactions with, the Roman empire. Um, I mean, and with Rome, I mean, they're part of the Roman empire. So they're kind of these, um, you know, these, these vassal Kings of, of Rome. Anyway, I just thought it was fascinating. And I, I almost think like now having read that book, it's almost like homiletical malpractice, not to know that, mm -hmm. not to know the context in which Jesus was preaching and prophesying and John the Baptist was, you know, um, um, telling Herod Antipas that it, what marrying his brother's wife was, you know, against Torah and yeah. then getting beheaded as a result. There's, it just shed so much light on all this, but it also caused me like, man, and this is maybe what you come in contact with by going there so regularly that place was a freaking mess. 
Yeah. I mean, it was a mess. We have these visions. Okay, not we. I shouldn't uh, just say me. I have these visions of like, and then all the Jews went up to Jerusalem at the Passover and they were singing the Psalms of Ascent and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And then Herod killed 6,000 of them. Mm. Like at the, at, you know, like at different festivals, thousands of Jews would be killed and Mm -hmm. there would be fighting in the streets it was madness. Yeah. There are also, there are also a, rival temples. There's a temple up North and yeah. the temple in Jerusalem. So, right. Yeah. Right. And we like, we're wringing our hands about our society right now and it's collapse, which I personally think is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, the collapse of America, the American experiment, I think is coming to an end, which is fine. Like no, there's no, no nation state government has, it lasts indefinitely. Um, but it was a mess. Like the backdrop of Jesus and Paul was a crazy mess. Mm-hmm. And I just think, I don't know, that's not usually my vision of Jerusalem w- with in the day of Jesus. And that's because you haven't been to Israel with me. That's the part of, part of it. <laughs> right. It wouldn't have even been a surprise. <laughs> yeah. In fact, one of the, the temple or the, uh, the palace where Herod, the great was buried is called the Herodian. It's right on the edge of Bethlehem. Yes. It's like it's, yeah, it, it's, uh, and, and, and maybe, maybe one thing you're, you're saying here is that whatever we think about the story of Jesus and its effectiveness, we can say it was born into a world with as much turmoil as we're experiencing now, maybe more, more. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Blood in the streets, man. Blood ran in the streets mm-hmm. at, at the high holy days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who was a real Jew and who wasn't. And then, then, then this fad happens of the Nazarite vow and these, you know, uh, it was interesting. It was a fascinating book and I think you would really love it. And I yeah. think probably yeah. if you're, if your listeners are people who've been with you to Israel or have interest in that or the backdrop, this book called the Herods, it's from Fortress Press is really, really outstanding. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks for the, uh, the recommendation. Um, let's, let's land here. I want to thank you for your time, you know, thanks for telling a bit of your story. Thanks for sharing a bit of the challenges that you faced the last couple years. Um, I want to go on record and recommend your podcast, the Reverend Hunter. Um, is that what it's called? Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed it and thanks. I think there's, not only is it, you know, there, there's some insider stuff, insider hunting stuff in there, um, but you're talking about, well, on one level, you're asking, what is a spiritual life? What is our, what is our relationship with the natural world like? What is it, what does it expose about who we are and the way the world works? And anyway, I, I have enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe, Maybe you want to leave us forward with what to look for coming down the pipe from you. Anything? Well, I, I would love if I, I don't know if my memoir will ever be published, but I hope it will be. And it's the title is called The God of Wild Places. Hmm. So it really is about some of these things you and I have talked about. Um, it's my reflection on how the wilderness 
was so life-giving to me when I got pushed out of the church. And it's just an interesting time now for me kind of taking baby steps back into the church, you know, Mm -hmm. tiptoeing into the shallow end of the pool (laughs) to see, do I still really fit here? I love to preach and I love to teach and I know a lot. It's kind of what I was made to do. Mm. Um, and I'm, I miss the community. I miss the people. Um, but yeah, how will it sit with me during this kind of trial period? That's, that'll be fascinating. I'll just say that in closing for me, I'm so glad that I had that period of my life where I got to do the stuff I got to do because I got to meet you, you know, I like you and I formed a friendship and we're able to even work together on your book. And I miss that. I miss that aspect. Like I miss seeing you at conferences, mm. but neither one of us goes to Christian conferences anymore, but yeah, you know I what I'm saying? <laughs> neither, neither do I, neither yeah. do I. And I, but I made a lot of friends yeah. uh, uh, doing that friends I wouldn't otherwise have. And I miss that. I'm glad to be in touch with you and, and others as well, who've, you know, been a part of my journey, but I miss, I miss that. I miss seeing old friends, making new friends and some of that, you know, it's life. I, I don't, it's just life stages. Like things change. I had that, I had that crazy 10 or 15 years of going to those conferences and somebody clipping the headset mic on me and out I walked onto the stage and did my thing, you know? Yeah. You know, you yeah, I know. know, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I want to say something about the community that was forming. And I think one of the things, while I listened to, to the, the Christianity today podcast, whatever, what's it called? The rise and fall of Mars Hill. Mm-hmm. And there a lot could be said about that which we won't go into now, but one of the things that struck me was how unnecessarily isolated I was in my own job as a megachurch pastor. Hmm. Hmm. And there were actually loads of people, yourself included, who were cheering me on really and wanted Mm -hmm. me to do well. It was still, in my view, the right thing to leave. I mean, it's just much more, if I didn't leave, I wasn't going to grow up. That's what it really boils down to for me. Wow. But I didn't realize in a way how good I had it. It just, there was something about the mega church, especially the other Mars Hill, the, my, my Mars Hill, Rob's Mars Hill, whatever you want to call it, that we were, we had a high view of what, what we were up to. You know, we don't need to get involved in these conferences or maybe we'll show uh-huh. up from time that, to time. You know, it's like that and, was definitely the attitude from your church toward the rest of us. Totally. Like, what do totally. we have to learn from you guys? <laughs> yeah. We have our own music. Yeah. Actually, that's that was right. what was sh- so shocking about about listening to the the part, the the Seattle Marshall, because they had the same attitude, which was yeah. we don't need it. We don't play. We don't play cover tunes. Yeah. We write all our own music. And it, when, when I heard them say that, it was like, it just cut me, you know, it's just like, oh God, oh. That this is what, <laughs> this is what I was doing. This is what I was busy doing, which is very, I mean, that's kind of comes from that entrepreneur attitude yeah. around mega churches in general. And yeah, I just, I don't know. So I, in a way I feel grateful that, that there were people around me, but I really did not say, Hey, I need some help here. You know, 
maybe things would have gone a little differently if I, if I would have even seen what was going on on a larger scale here, you know, instead of the mm-hmm. hyper specialness of my particular part of the world. So mm-hmm. anyway, enough said about that for right yeah. now. Um, yeah, let's leave it at that. I'll, I'll, I'll pause here, but again, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Oh Tommy. man. It's just great to see you great to talk to you and I miss seeing you in person. Yeah. Same. All right. Peace.